everyone, Shirley here. Welcome to today's discussion about the realities of the regulatory environment that all federal government contractors operate in. We have no choice. If you want to do business with the federal marketplace, you must become familiar with the regulations that govern business development, the way you deliver products and services to the government, how you run your business, how you account for transactions, and how you comply with the inevitable audits. To help me sort through these issues, I reached out to Kathy Gowen, the CEO of OpsPro, which serves small government contractors across the country. Welcome, Kathy. Hi, Sharon. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure having you. Please tell our audience a little about yourself and OpsPro. Well, Shirley, I'm the CEO of OpsPro. We're a consulting and outsourcing service provider for business operations specializing in government contractors. This includes direct responsibility for managing accounting and finance, strategic planning, human resources, contracting, and information technology. I personally possess over 25 years of progressive cradle-to-grave experience in business stand-up and startups, rollouts, and expansions. OPSPRO creates an efficient management system and established policies and procedures to ensure accuracy and accountability, as well as to always check that compliance box. We have the significant ability to adapt to a rapidly growing environment, and we're attuned to both the fine details and the big pictures of an organization. Thank you, Kathy. You and I both work with small government contractors throughout the country. They all dread having to tune into and comply with the myriad regulations that govern the federal marketplace. But the reason, of course, that they have chosen to do business with the federal government is that there are huge opportunities for small businesses. It is a $500 billion marketplace, and 23% of that spending goes to small businesses. I am particularly interested in our conversation today because I help small contractors understand and operate within the procurement regulations from a business development perspective, and you help contractors with what happens after they win the work, contract management, human resources, accounting, and other areas of compliance. Between the two of us, we cover the spectrum. Let's begin with some definitions of the types of regulations that impact small contractors. The majority of the regulations will be in their terms and conditions, otherwise known as clauses or flow-down clauses that are listed in your contract. They're typically towards the back when you get your contract document. Some of these regulations, while they're triggered by the type of contract awarded, was that a cost plus six fee versus a firm fixed price, The type of award, was this a set-aside for a small business, a veteran-owned, an 8A versus a full and open? Some are triggered by total dollar threshold in the government market or even employee headcount. These regulations can guide you from everything about how you price your service and product to the government, how you hire and pay your employees, how you can even pay yourself as an owner, how you do your accounting, etc. The list can go on and on and on. (laughs) Unfortunately. And we're going to get into a couple of these issues. I would add that there are FAR clauses that govern business development that are also important to understand. So these are just a few. FAR 1.102-4E specifically charges acquisition officials with encouraging 
business process innovations and promotes the use of a wide variety of strategies and practices to ensure that mission requirements are met. Now, this dispels the myth that using innovative business strategies in the federal contracting process is not a program management or contracting office responsibility. The way this is translated to small businesses is that they should be aggressive about approaching contracting and program offices with innovative ideas, not just looking for a chance to take away an existing contract from an incumbent. This same FAR clause provides contract office flexibility to meet mission needs, including large mission-critical requirements in a timely and even expedited manner. All agencies have an Agency Innovation Advocate, or an AIA, whose role is to shorten the time from requirements identification to solution delivery by considering all available options under the FAR and and not just resorting to past practices. And that may come as a surprise to some contractors. There are at least 20 strategies and tools that are sanctioned by the FAR such as confidence ratings and on-the-spot consensus evaluations that are now used in the procurement process with increasing frequency. There are also a number of non-FAR authorities available to agencies, which we'll talk about later. But first, I would like to hear from you, Kathy, which operations-related regulations are most misunderstood by contractors. Well, Shirley, I'm going to probably start first with the, the biggest um, one that I see that creates some confusion among everybody, and that's what I call the allowable cost and payment clause. If you were to look in your FAR clauses in your contracts or your subcontract, it's numbered 52216, and it can be dash 7, uh, sometimes it's a dash 8 or 11, but you're looking for the words allowable cost and payment. So there's a couple big misconceptions around this clause. The first is that it only applies to cost plus fee contracts, and the second is that it only applies to prime contractors. And in both cases, that is not correct. The allowable cost and payment clause can apply to both cost-type contracts as well as time and materials. Specifically, the triggering mechanism here is if in any way you are charging back the government based on an indirect rate. So if you're putting G&A on your travel or your ODCs, then you have triggered the allowable cost and payment clause, um, even if you're a subcontractor. So I think a lot of people think that as a subcontractor that this regulation does not apply to them, and it absolutely does. And some of the places that subcontractors can get caught is if the prime has a cost plus six-week contract, and then the subcontractor maybe has a time and material. And then the prime just flows down all of those clauses. So even if the subcontractor is not charging G&A on travel or ODCs, guess what? That FAR clause just got flowed down to you, and it triggered this requirement for an incurred cost emission. So that's the biggest piece of the allowable cost and payment clause, is that it triggers the requirement for an incurred cost emission. And when that happens, six months after the end of your fiscal close, You have to do a report where you pull everything out of your accounting system and recalculate your indirect rates and burdens back to your contracts through a series of Excel spreadsheets, and then you have to submit it back to typically DCAA if you're doing DOD work 
or if you're USAID to the USAID auditing group. And then you get put in a bucket where you can get randomly selected for audits, and the audit is based on your indirect rates and your accounting system. So it's definitely a much higher level of compliance than you realize just through one single clause. Well, we never want to be triggered for an audit, (laughs) for sure. So what are the penalties for unallowable costs? So if the government comes and reviews your, your, your accounting books and believes that you have charged the government for what costs that are, are listed under the FAR clause uh, that are unallowable, then there's going to be penalties and interest going back to the beginning of the contract. And if the government believes that this was intentional versus accidental, there could even be criminal charges for fraud. And then once the government begins to believe that you have accounting issues, you'll be put into the high-risk bucket, which means not only will you have this one audit, but you're going to be audited annually until they can get a level of comfort back that you are um, handling everything appropriately. Yeah, that makes sense. Many of my clients are in the IT sector and are impacted by NIST 800 and CMMC. What is most misunderstood about these regulations? I think it's probably even kind of close a little bit to what we just talked about in allowable cost and payment, that people believe it does not apply to them if they're a subcontractor, and then a lot of people believe that it doesn't apply to them if they're a small business. Again, if the regulation is listed in your contract, if it is in your FAR flow-down clauses and or your statement of work, and you have signed that contract, then it applies to you. And my understanding is that CMMC started with DOD contracts, but other agencies have now adopted these standards. Correct. We are starting to see in uh, RFPs from DHS and DOD and the VA, the CMMC certification requirement will be listed in those RFPs as part of the requirement based upon contract awards. They are stating at this point in time for those other agencies that you don't need to be CMC certified prior to awards, but that you need to implement and be certified after awards. One area of overlap in operations and business development regarding regulations, Kathy, is in the Truth in Negotiations Act, commonly referred to as TINA. Explain what that's all about. So TINA is really all about your pricing and proposal work. TINA is used when the government feels like there's not enough competition so that they require contractors to do a a full cost build. This is probably the one most important FAR clause to any small business that does set-asides or sole contract awards, especially 8A. So explain what you mean by that. The Truth in Negotiation Act, or TINA, requires an offerer to submit current and accurate and complete certified cost or pricing data. And this happens when the procurement exceeds the TINA threshold of $2 million. Hence why I said it's probably most important to A-Days because A-Days have that ability to get directed sole source awards up to $4.5 million. So when an offerer gets this TINA clause in the RFP, they need to make sure they have backup for all of the costing that they have put together to give that price to the government. And they also want to make sure that they've saved that backup. So what is the purpose of this statute? The purpose is to put the government on equal footing with contractors when they negotiate a non-competitive, non-commercial 
sole source contract by giving the government access to the same pricing information known to the contractor. Failure to provide current, accurate, and complete certified cost of pricing data may create a liability for defective pricing. The submittal of a certification of current cost of pricing data is a significant event that can have some serious legal and financial consequences for the offerer. While the contracting officer may still request cost of pricing data to support proposals under the TINA threshold, this cost of pricing data would not be certified and substantially reduces the offer's risk. How can contractors protect themselves? You need to keep documentation that backs up all of your pricing. You don't have to share that backup with the, with the contracting officer, but you definitely need to keep all of the backup. And then you need to perform what they call a TINA sweep prior to final negotiations. And so what we mean by that is you'll start your negotiations, let's say, in May. The TINA certification or the certified price and costing data doesn't happen till the very end when you sign, when you're all done with negotiations. So what happens if you are done with negotiations in September, but you had started in May, and in May you believe that your rent was going to be $10,000 a month, and that's what you put in your, your pricing proposal and you submitted to the government. But by the time you got to September, you had renegotiated your rent, and now it's only $5,000 a month. That's what we call a TINA sweep. You need to go back and look at all of your pricing information right before you sign that document and make sure that it's still all true and accurate and valid as of the date that you sign the certification. That is the legal point that all of this hinges on. Wow. Uh, And what, what about subcontractors? It applies to subcontractors too. So a lot of times the prime needs to slow that clause down so that the subcontractor also certifies their information and data that it's accurate and true and there's no there's no problem in that pricing. So obviously the prime is going to share that liability. They're not going to hold on to it themselves because that's the subcontractor's pricing. And many subcontractors will be surprised to hear that. How does the government identify contractor defective pricing? So there's a couple of ways. The most common effort is a post-award audit um, conducted by DCA. DCA looks at the actual contract cost compared to what's been proposed or your agreed-upon prices. And then they ask if any underruns were intentional, i.e. based on lack of disclosure of certified cost of pricing data, or did something change kind of in the scope of work. Um, the risk from these audits has decreased in recent years as DCA's focus has been elsewhere. However, the risk of a civil false claims act case that originates from an allegation of defective pricing made by a whistleblower has increased at the same time. Um, and so, therefore, defective pricing remains a compliance concern. And let me remind the audience that that whistleblower can be internal or external to your organization. And if the company is found in fault, that whistleblower will get a portion of the penalties that are assigned to the company, meaning they get cash back for blowing the whistle. So there's a huge incentive. There is a huge incentive, especially if you have somebody disgruntled. I've also seen it where talk has been made casually in the office and a competitor has overheard some information that has made them feel like they can blow the whistle or or even just file something against the contract award to try to stop it, and it can create this sort of same issue. 
Oh, Lord. Well, it's, it's a very competitive market, and so it's not surprising that these are some of the practices out there. Kathy, you mentioned briefly commercial items, which is governed by FAR Part 12. This is often applied in conjunction with FAR Part 13 regarding simplified acquisitions, Part 14 regarding sealed bidding, and Part 15, which promotes competition. When there's a conflict among these parts, Part 12 governs. What I particularly wanted to impart to our audience is the contracting flexibility currently in place. As explained in the March 20th, 2020 OMB memo related to the national emergency caused by COVID declared under the Stafford Act. There is special emergency procurement flexibilities under FAR Part 18.202, which resulted in three things. Number one, the micro-purchase threshold was raised from $10,000 to $20,000. The simplified acquisition threshold was raised from $250,000 to $750,000 for domestic purchases and $1.5 million for purchases OCONUS, or outside the continental United States. Number three, agencies may use the simplified acquisition procedures up to $13 million for commercial item buys. And commercial items are defined as products or services that could potentially be sold in the commercial market, which is the majority of what the federal government buys. This means that contract offices can award non-compete direct awards for contracts valued at $750,000 up to $13 million very easily. And this is for all contractors, not just those with socioeconomic certifications. So, Kathy, we're talking about ways that regulations inhibit business growth as well as promote it. I would like for you to talk about the concept of flow-down clauses. And, I mean, it seems like most primes just put flow-down clauses in without edits. So what I hear you saying is that it is incumbent upon subcontractors to read every flow-down clause and question those that do not apply. You have hit the nail on the head with that one. So this is so true. I've seen so many subcontractors get caught up in a compliance or a regulation that did not even need to apply to them, but because it was in their clauses, it triggered this requirement. So a, a perfect example, again, is if a prime contractor has a cost plus 60 contract and you have a firm fixed price contract with them as a subcontractor, but they slow down all the requirements of a cost plus 60 contract, including that allowable cost and payment clause that we talked about earlier, which would now trigger an incurred cost emission for you. Or if the prime have Service Contract Act employees and they're taking the piece of work that covers the Service Contract Act employees and the piece of work you're covering or working on does not have Service Contract Act employees, but they still slow down the Service Contract requirement as well as the wage determination, now you're creating issues about dealing with, you know, having a Service Contract Act contract. So explain limitations on subcontracting. So the government will put several types of possible limitations on subcontracting. The first is based upon the type of award. So if this was an award for 
a woman-owned small business or a set-aside or a VA or an A day, they're going to limit the amount of subcontracting that can be performed on this contract so that the majority of the work performed is done by people that fit that socioeconomic group. So A-Day concerns need to do 51% of the work, et cetera. But they can also limit it that they want approval of any subcontractors added to the contract, and that's usually um, set in the RFP where they'll notate that if a subcontractor has over 10%, the government needs to see their pricing in the proposal or they need a prior authorization to adding any subcontractor to the work. So I would think that all businesses should understand that if you did not bid that subcontractor in your RFP, go back and look at your contract before adding subcontractors to the contract after the fact to make sure that you are allowed to be able to do that. And of course, there are regulations that govern labor, your employees and your contractors. Can you address the Service Contract Act and executive compensation? Sure. So the Service Contract Act is the government identifying certain types of labor and wages and state that they need to be given um, what they call health and welfare benefits. It originally started with what was considered more manual labor type of work, but it has recently grown into the IT sector. And this is a pretty complex type of contract in terms of how you have to handle your payroll and your benefits for these type of employees. The government is required to identify in the RFP that it is a service contract act, and they're also required to give you a sheet called the health and welfare rates, which identifies the minimum hourly rate you must pay that employee, as well as the minimum hourly rate for health and welfare benefits that you need to give them in benefits or cash in lieu of. Uh, In the last couple months, we've had several clients where the original contract had the Service Contract Act clause in it, but they were never given the health and welfare uh, sheet to explain the costing and benefit requirements. And now the government's coming back several years later and saying, oops, we made a mistake. This is now a Service Contract Act, and you need to go ahead and retroactively pay these people their health and welfare benefits or audit to make sure that they receive the minimum requirements. And then with executive comps, there can be several limits about what you're allowed to be able to uh, pay executives. The limits can be based upon the agency. So, for example, USAID has a limit on the amount of salary that you can pay an executive. The limits can be based upon the contract, meaning how old the contract was. There are new limits that got placed um, starting in any contract awarded, I believe, after 2017, that has a certain income limit for executives, and then contracts older than that, the limit was much more generous. It is so important to tune into these rules. Kathy, we need to take a break. I'm talking to Kathy Gowen, CEO of Ops Pro, about federal regulations that hurt as well as help small contractors. When we come back, we'll be discussing using former government officials in your BD efforts. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. This Growth Masters Federal presentation is hosted by Shirley Colliger, president and founder of Scale to Market. Scale to Market helps businesses think, plan, collaborate, and build market value by developing and executing customized, data-driven business development playbooks, 
building efficient information systems, and creating high-performing BD teams. Utilizing the proprietary Davy Business Development Growth Framework, Scale to Market partners with business owners and executives to increase their company's value by achieving profitable and sustainable growth in the federal marketplace. Email Shirley at scollier at scaletomarket.com to learn more about the Davy Growth Framework and how it can be instrumental in helping grow your federal contracting business. Back now to Shirley's conversation with Kathy Gowen, CEO of OpsPro, as they detail the advantages and disadvantages the FARs can have on small government contractors. The discussion runs about another 10 minutes. Welcome back. Before the break, we were discussing regulations that impact your employees and contractors. Let's elaborate on executive comp. Most government contractors are unaware that executive compensation is is regulated. So elaborate on that a little bit. So as we discussed before the break, there can be limits on the amount of executive compensation that you can pay. But there's also a reporting requirement that a lot of uh, government contractors are unaware that applies to them as they subcontract to other companies. So as a prime, when you go into your SAM record and you update your information annually, there's a section in there that asks a series of questions. You know, did you receive over X number of money in awards, and if you did, are, you know, do you already report this through um, the SEC? And if no, then you need to report your five most highly compensated executives. But you also need to report it as a prime for your subcontractors. So the FSRS, which is the reporting requirement for all first-tier subcontractors, requires you to capture that data of your subcontractor and report it in that system. And I'm going to say, as of right now, that FSRS has moved over to the new SAM beta version. Um, so it's kind of in this weird in-between place where you can still report at FSRS, but you're also starting to be able to report it in the SAM beta version where they've kind of merged all of the reporting systems under one. And I understand that there is a floor under which reporting is not required. Is that right? That's correct. If the contractor in the previous tax year had gross income from all sources under $300,000, then that contractor is exempt from the requirement to report subcontractor awards. Now, many contractors in our audience work with the Department of Defense and often hire former DOD officials. What are the regulations regarding hiring and compensating those individuals? So if you're hiring a former DOD official, then you need to make sure that as they leave the military or as a civilian employee that they have gotten their ethics letter that allows them to come and work uh, for a government contractor. And it's under your responsibility as the hiring company to understand that they have requested that letter, they have a copy of that letter, and that letter is applicable to the work they're doing for you. And I want to say that part's really important because sometimes as somebody starts to leave the military, they think they're going to go do research and development um, for Blue Valley, and then that opportunity doesn't happen, and all of a sudden they pivot, and they're going to come over and start doing business development for your company. You want to make sure that that ethics letter that they've 
requested from the government to give approval for their ability to work for a government contractor now reflects the work that they're trying to do for you. And this is especially important for anybody that was civilian or in the military that was in the acquisition role for the government, even if it had nothing to do with the type of work you're bidding on or working in. And then anybody that was a military officer would also be required that letter. If they were enlisted and not involved in acquisitions at all, they do not need to get an ethics letter. We only have a short amount of time together today, Kathy, unfortunately, because this is such an important topic. But what are some of the additional FAR clauses that small contractors should be cognizant of? There's a couple of ones that people need to think about. The first one, there's a new CMRA reporting, and that's a reporting that's required um, every October and this requires you to report the level of hours worked on contracts, even if that contract is a firm fixed-price contract. Uh, if you have employees working abroad uh, in foreign countries, you could be required to have DBA insurance or Defense-Based Act insurance. This is basically international workmen's comp. Probably the ones that people are, are aware of cognitively but are not aware of the actual compliance steps that need to happen is the veterans' requirements for hiring. So as a government contractor, you are required to give veterans first right of refusal for job opportunities. So if you have two um, applicants and all things being equal and one is a veteran and one is not, the veteran should have the right to the job first. That requires a couple extra compliance steps, so you need to make sure that your jobs are posted on certain state veteran board sites to be able to click that compliance box. And then the last one is that a lot of contracts have a clause called limitation of funds, which means you're required to report to the federal government uh, when you exhaust a certain level of your funding. Usually it's set about the 75% or 80% threshold, and then you need to send a letter to the contractor advising them that you're about to run out of funds. So basically you've, you've kind of got to watch the money for them, and then notify them when you get close. What are the biggest mistakes you see small businesses make? Probably the biggest is is not understanding what's in their FAR clauses and not understanding that the rules apply to them, even if they are a small contractor. There are a couple of the FAR clauses out there that, as a small contractor, you get a pass on, but they're few and far between. Or even most important, that because they're a subcontractor, they don't believe those rules and regulations or FAR clauses apply to them. Again, if your prime put it in your contract and flowed it down to you and you signed that contract, then they apply. And then I think the other one that's probably important to understand is a lot of these regulations have a trigger point, either an employee threshold or a dollar threshold or a contract award. And then once that trigger point has been triggered, it's typically a look back from them so let's just say that um, you hired your 50th employee in October. Well, 50 employees triggers the EEOC filing requirement. And that EEOC filing requirement is for the entire calendar year. So if you were not capturing that data back in January that you would need to file that report, then you would have you know a lot of hard work to have to gather everything by hand. So you want to keep an eye on not only what regulations you have right now, But what could you be triggering in the future that's going to require you to gather data? Typically, it's either a 12-month look back or a fiscal year look back or a calendar year look back. 
And what happens if a company does not follow the FAR? Well, you're definitely going to run into legal and even criminal issues. The last place you want to be is defending yourself in federal court. And, of course, there's also the ability to possibly get disbarred and not be able to do any work again with the federal government. Yeah, we don't want that. Any final thoughts you would like to leave with our audience, Kathy? You know, small businesses, you do get a pass on some regulatory requirements, but not all of them. You need to be aware of what you're agreeing to do prior to signing your contract. After the fact, it's too late. I agree. Kathy, thank you so much for sharing your insights with our audience today. Thank you, Shirley. It's been my pleasure. Folks, if you would like to get in touch with Kathy, she can be reached at Kathy with a C dot Goin, G-O-I-N at OpsPro, O-P-S-P-R-O dot com. Or you can reach out to us here at Skelta Market and we'll make sure you're connected. This is Shirley Collier, president of Skelta Market and host of the Growth Masters Federal Podcast, signing off for now. As we close, I want to thank you for joining us today and encourage you to connect with me on LinkedIn and visit our website, that's skeletomarket.com with the number two in the middle, where you will find our library of podcasts, webcasts, white papers, my blog, and other links and resources. While there, please leave us a comment or suggestion so we can stay focused on what's important to you. We'll see you next time.